From Relativity and our Relativity One partners, this is Uncivil Procedure, the e-discovery podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Srunian, Program Manager on the Event Marketing Team, and here is your host, Relativity Discovery Council and Legal Education Director, David Horrigan. Thank you as always, Ms. Saruni, and welcome to another episode of Uncivil Procedure. Today we're going to be discussing proportionality. And we're not just talking about the size of the portions at your local Denny's restaurant, although we are going to discuss that. We're going to be talking about proportionality and e-discovery in the law and how it relates to everything you do. For listeners who aren't really in tune with e-discovery and the six-pronged test of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26B1, we can actually have some fun with this without being dry and boring. We are going to talk about a Denny's Grand Slam, and we are even going to mention the Mick Jagger Doctrine. And you may be wondering what this has to do with anything. We'll explain. But first, a word from our sponsor, Ms. Arunian. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure is brought to you by JND eDiscovery. JND eDiscovery is a legal services provider serving corporations, law firms, and government agencies in the areas of data collection, ESI processing, review hosting, production, and expert testimony. They give their clients the tools and know how they need to meet their discovery goals predictably and within budget. From preservation to production, let us worry about the technical details while you focus on winning your case. With offices from Hong Kong to Houston, Shanghai to Chicago, but giving down-home personalized local service, we have with us today Jay Carl, partner in the Chicago, and I might add, the original office of Seifarth Shaw. Jay, welcome to Uncivil Procedure. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Now, Jay, uh, we got to know you earlier today, and of course, many of us at Relativity have worked with you over the years, and you've got many interesting stories, but... uh, We thought we'd start off by one that's got importance. Um, Not only because at Relativity Fest, we're going to have a session on access to justice with Justice Tanya Kennedy, James Sandman, president of the Legal Services Corporation, Sabrina Jenkins of Starbucks. And uh, it's going to be a panel where we talk about the real needs we have in the nation for access to justice and what we can all do. You've got a start in this that's really important. Care to tell our viewers about it? Sure, I'd be glad to. I'm, I'm glad to hear about that panel. I didn't know about that panel. But when I started at, uh, or when I went to school at Chicago Kent College of Law, I worked for a center at the law school called the Center for Access to Justice and Technology. And it was um, through uh, grant writing and uh, the leadership of Professor Ron Stout, we built um, something called Access to Justice Author, which is a tool that is still used today by legal aid attorneys to build guided interviews to help people gain access to the court system. So um, it was, you know, through that experience that I became introduced to uh, the people that I know at Seifarth and got my first um, introduction into Seifarth, which, uh, you know, led to my career. Hey, you know, you've had a long-lasting impact because this past January, when we were all under the snow, um, some of us were out in sunny San Diego for the Association of American Law Schools conference. People could have been outside enjoying the sun, but they were inside in a session. It was really jam-packed hearing about what you did there. So great work, sir. Oh, thank you very much. And of course, we can't have uncivil procedure without our expert panel of legal technology experts. We, of course, have Counselor Constantine Pappas, Counselor Daniel Pelk, and last but never, ever least, Counselor Julie Huner. We'll start with Constantine Pappas. And today's question we ask of you, share one story of a time you've been a victim of a disproportionate response to something not in the law, not in technology, but in your personal life. All right, uh, we're, we're digging deep here. So uh, I have two kids, 
uh, 11 and 7 uh, years of age. My son, Theo, this was probably about two years ago. I went to wake him up, and he was like, you know, five-year-old kid, like all curled up in a ball in his bed. And I started snuggling with him, and I said, hey, Theo, you're so snuggly. What am I going to do when you're too old to snuggle? I'm going to be uh, without a snuggle buddy. And he looked at me um, and just said, barely opening his eyes, he just whispered, you'll be dead. <laughs> Which I felt was not the Papa's household. I felt was, that was not a proportionate response <laughs> to my affection. That's right. Daniel Pelk, senior manager working with our law firm clients. A disproportionate response in your personal life. Oh, I've got a doozy. When I was in college, I worked for a tennis club. Not that I have any particular knowledge of tennis, but it was close by. So I worked at the tennis club, living in Minneapolis. My parents were living in Milwaukee. Thanksgiving rolls around, and I said to a colleague of mine, a colleague at a tennis club, co-worker, uh, I said, I really want to go home for Thanksgiving. I don't get to go home very often. I just want to go home for the weekend. She said, don't worry, I'll cover for you. So two days before I go home, I said to her, sure, we're okay. Everything's fine. She said, nope, we're good. So then I'm home in Milwaukee, and I get a call from the tennis club. Where are you? Well, I'm not supposed to be there. She's supposed to be there. So I get back. She never showed up. Just blew it off. So the manager fires both of us. Disproportionate response. Which beer do you really think made Milwaukee famous? Um, well, there's so many. I mean, there's Schlitz, there's Pabst. I mean, yes, there's the tagline, but um, Miller. Uh-huh. I agree. Julie Huner, your take? She has no voice in this I conversation. Am, I think it's Pabst. Pabst Blue Ribbon <laughs> yeah, from yeah, Counselor Carl. Win that blue ribbon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's right on the can. It is on the can, but it's not really there anymore because now it's made in St. Louis, so it really doesn't count anymore. Mm. Julie Huner, batter up. Something in your personal life where you had or got a disproportionate response. You got this. Yeah, so it's good that I did go last, gave me some time to think about this, but I didn't have to think too hard uh, because this one still outrages me a little bit. Uh, just over a year ago, I was maid of honor at one of my oldest friend's weddings, and I was pretty excited about the speech. I kind of had nailed that, you know, nice things about the bride, but also a little humor. And maybe two minutes in, um, I see one of our, our good friends that I've known since I was about three years old uh, takes offense to something I said, and she stands up, and she gets her husband, and they storm out. Wow. Uh, still to this day, I'm not sure exactly what I said that set her off, but they had traveled six hours to be there and were at the wedding for less than maybe 15 minutes before leaving. Wow. Nicely done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that let's hear it for the bride and groom must have been awfully offensive. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Julie Huner, customer success manager at Relativity, <laughs> with stories on how not to get married. Zing! <laughs> And now today's topic, proportionality. It's a big topic for those caught up in the minutia of e-discovery law. For example, before the 2015 amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, there were many battles back and forth about what actually should be included. We settled on a six-pronged test, including the importance of the issues at stake in the action, the party's relative access to the information, the party's resources, yeah, rich guys and poor guys may have to produce differently. The importance of discovery and resolving the issues. And, of course, 
as lawyers and butchers and candlestick makers often like to do a balancing test, whether the burdens or expense of the proposed discovery outweighs its likely benefit. And you know, we've written in the Relativity blog and of course in our annual case law year in review about the Mick Jagger test for proportionality. And that is, you can't always get what you want. And of course we have the benefit of having Seifarth partner, Jay Carl here. Jay, you must have had a story when somebody came to you wanting everything in the kitchen sink. Well, it, it seems to happen almost on a daily basis. I mean, we kind of live in a world of proportionality. Everything that we do seems to be kind of touched from a proportionality perspective. But just to illustrate, uh, recently um, was working on some discovery responses in which the, uh, the opposition had asked for um, uh, a, search, a, a search to be performed across your systems um, for words such as claim and underwriting um, when the, the organization is a, uh, you know, a, a, a national insurance carrier. Mm. Um, <laughs> no, that won't return any documents. Just a few bits. <laughs> so yes, we see that kind of thing all the time. Well, we see it all the time, of course, in the law and e-discovery, but um, it can happen in real life also. Julie Huner, it may have even happened to you on a Chicago public transit vehicle. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, right, because the CTA is pretty much a dream. Um, but uh, yeah, just a couple weeks ago, I was headed into work, um, pretty excited. I hadn't had my coffee yet. And I noticed a guy was kind of lurking outside the turnstiles to get into the red line. And I noticed he tried to like follow this, this woman in. He was trying to get a free ride is what he was doing. I had my eye on him. And uh, I, I go to pay, and as I turned my head, he, he decided to jump in front of me and essentially steal my ride. Oh. Now, I'm a pretty calm person, but don't mess with me before I've had my coffee. So my, what I believe was a, proportion, a proportional response was I, I grabbed him by the shoulder, and I pulled him back and kind of threw him against the wall. And he yelled a few <laughs> expletives at him. And uh, at Tort this point, Caesar. Yeah, at this point, everyone's kind of staring. Um, but, but then I, I did something else, which was I proceeded to, to go through the, the turnstile because I didn't want to lose my fare. If you don't go through fast enough, it's going to clear out. And he didn't learn his lesson and, and tried to come in behind me. Um, but what I did when I got through was essentially like held the bar so that it would lock again. <laughs> <laughs> so he was temporarily kind of trapped until the next person came because the bars won't move until the next fare comes through. I think it was justified. I felt like that was the appropriate uh, response to someone who's trying to steal my ride. Um, but I don't know. I, I, what do you guys think? So let's let's go down the list. Where so <laughs> the importance of the issue. So this is obviously a matter of principle. This is principle. Okay. For sure. So so where where on the spectrum of importance of the issue? I mean, I'm a very law-abiding person. Clearly. I would never steal someone else's ride like yeah. that. Especially this gentleman was wearing a very nice suit. Oh uh, wow. Okay. Had, that's had his not briefcase. Was... Like it was not someone who looked like maybe they couldn't afford the ride. He. It was clear that he does this every day. Nice. Yeah. Now let's get to that second prong, shall we? The amount <laughs> in controversy. Technically, two fifty. Yes. <laughs> rush hour or not rush hour? It was rush hour. Mm. Ooh, that changes everything. Oh yeah. It does. Time uh, is yeah. money, friends. Yeah, I needed to get on the train. Um, and you know, the the earlier you get up there, also you might get a seat, which is a hot commodity True. on the red line. Yep. So uh, yeah, so far I think I think I'm nailing it. 
Okay. <laughs> the parties, I mean, this gentleman could have very easily walked to the machine right there and bought themselves a ticket. That's a slam dunk one. Yeah. Yes. Maybe had a venture card already. Yeah, he might have even had one, right? Like, I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's also, you also have to consider the party's resources, yes. Mm. Yes. It's true. Ding, 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 Carl, he yes. had deep pockets. And then another question is, because he never paid for his rent. That's true. That's true. That's tr I feel like I'm a reasonable person if we want to apply a reasonable person standard here. <laughs> How important was discovery in resolving these issues, I counselor? Mean, I made that discovery analysis pretty quickly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did you do a balancing test in the split second where you decide to take that guy, throw him over the turnstile, and enforce justice for the CTA? I absolutely did because, you know, my thought process was that I, as probably evident from my voice here, I am a, a female. I'm not particularly imposing. And I felt like I balanced the fact that, like, I was being a little aggressive with this guy, someone who was larger than me. You know, I wasn't exerting my own power over him. Um, and he didn't get harmed and eventually got there and did end up getting a free ride. Thank you, Counselor Julie Huner. Now, let's also remember that these disputes, ah, disputes is such a pejorative, harsh term, these legal analyses happen in places other than Chicago, and in fact, they happen in Europe, where both Seifarth Shaw and Relativity have operations. Daniel Pelk, a European story on proportionality. I do, David. Uh, before we begin, since my wife is probably listening to this podcast, I'm sorry, Rachel, I won this one. <laughs> anyway. Rachel and I, when we were dating in college, took a five-week backpacking trip across Europe. At this point, we're in mid-July in Barcelona. It is about 100 to 105 degrees, about the same level of humidity, about 100 to 150 percent. So this is in 1993, back before there was an internet, the fact back before there were mobile phones. So we've got the thick Let's Go Europe guide uh, and in the guide, it says there are no laundromats in Barcelona. This is now week three. So we've been moving a while now. We've been washing our stuff in sinks. It's time to start taking some of this stuff and getting it cleaned again. So I, my wife says, my girlfriend then, we're going to go find a laundromat. And I said, but right here in the book, it says there's no laundromats in Barcelona. And she said, how can that be? This is a city of like million people there has to be a laundromat I, but it says here in the book there's no laundromats in Barcelona we'll be fine let's go find one so I proceed to take everything we own on my back and walk out into the sun so we end up walking for an hour and a half I'm getting hotter and hotter as the sun feels like it's getting closer and closer to the top of my head uh, and we're starting to get a little bit snippier and a little bit snippier as things go on and eventually I lost it cracked a little bit uh, and in the middle of Barcelona, after we'd been arguing back and forth about whether there was actually laundromats or not, I threw the bag down, and in the loudest, most obnoxious touristy voice, with a loud American accent, I could yell, there are no effing laundromats in Barcelona. <laughs> and so we got into the loudest, angriest argument we had ever been in, until this day had have ever been in in front of about 150 Spaniards who all stopped to look at what was happening. So that was my disproportionate response uh, on my wife about whether there were laundromats in Barcelona or not. 
So are there any laundromats in Barcelona? <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, it turns out there is. A, there was a full service laundromat across the street from the hotel. <gasps> okay. Oh. So, so, so you really question. weren't right that time. Oh. No. But there were no laundromats. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, I lose. You did preface by saying that you were right about <laughs> okay. this, and I think history has proven <laughs> you. Rachel Pelz, our victor for the episode. <laughs> Constantine Pappas. A story of proportionality at the beach. So folks that know me know that I tend to get in fights with other people's children. <laughs> it's not something that I brag about or feel proud of. My wife works for Child Protective wife. Services. He You're in trouble. He doesn't brag about it, but he does talk about it on podcasts. Not, not, not physical <laughs> not fights. Not Just, uh, just battles, battles of wits, which I, which I lose. Um, so uh, this is probably two, three years ago. I was at the beach with my kids. I get to be a little bit aggravated when I see kids who are not being uh, monitored by their parents. That just drives me nuts if the kids are misbehaving and the parents are just on the phone or just like ignoring their own children. So I was making a sandcastle with my son, the same one that has the death wish for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're just sitting there in the surf uh, having a good time, making a sandcastle. And this little kid comes up to me, and he's probably about five years old, four or five years old. And he's got one of those big spray guns. It's sort of like a pump thing where you like you fill it up, and it's like a long tube, and you, you push a plunger, and it, it, a jet of water comes out. He walks right up to me, right in my face, point blank, just like sprays me in the face, and then points at me and starts laughing. A little bully. <laughs> so... Whatever happens next, understand that I didn't start this, okay? Yeah. So all I did was I looked at him. I said, don't you do that again or I'm going to take it away from you, I, which I think up to this point. Proportional. That we agree a measured response, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. His, his older sister was there. She witnesses the whole thing. Uh, she kind of drags him away. He's kind of like scared by my sort of menacing, like, don't you dare do that again kind of look. Um, and they disappear for a while. That's obviously not the end of the story. They come back about 10 minutes later, and uh, the little girl says, uh, my brother has something he wants to tell you. I said, okay. So he said, I'm sorry, mister. Now, if he had stopped talking, then this story would not be very fun. But instead, <laughs> he continued, I'm sorry, mister. I didn't mean to do it. And then I found myself in a Seinfeldian or Seinfeld-esque situation. Do I accept the apology or not? I didn't. And I said, thank you for your apology. Uh, but you absolutely meant to do it. Don't say you didn't mean to do it. And you pointed right at my face and you pointed at me at la and laughed. And then he started crying. Oh, oh the plaintiff's rebuttal makes the kid cry, you <laughs> monster. <laughs> and then he said, to oh. make things worse, he pointed at the sandcastle. He says, I was aiming for that. I said, well, you don't have a right to like spray at our sandcastle either. So that's not, you know, okay. And, and so then he went off again. But that's not the end of the story. So then later on... Uh, now his mother enters the picture. But she doesn't address me. Instead, she talks to the boy, like right in front of me, like five feet to the side of me. And she says, uh, well, within earshot, clearly intended for me, did you apologize? And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and then she goes, well, I guess you're the bigger man. <gasps> and I did, not take, I did not take the bait. So the question is, was my response proportional? Was her response proportional? This is, I mean, this is cascading upwards, you know. Like I said, I refused to engage at that point. 
So I want to hear what people think. Not knowing this child, I'm on Team Constantine on this one. Really? I think that because you gave the child such an adorable voice, it's very <laughs> hard for me not to root for him. <laughs> it depends on how old the child is, because technically In a 17-year-old is a child. All right, so. He was, about, he was about four or five. Yeah. Mm. That's you old know, enough. in many jurisdictions, six is the age of negligence. <laughs> You're incapable of negligence below that age. I, I guess the standard I was applying for, like, looking for standards is like, would I allow my child to say they didn't mean something when they clearly did, right? And is that is that the correct standard to apply to someone else's kids? Well, you're trying to teach her a lesson, not the kid. Ah, <laughs> touche, Miss Sarunian. Who? Who? His mom. Oh, no, no, but his mom wasn't around when I said that stuff. Right, but if she'd reared the child properly, he wouldn't be such a felon. Right. <laughs> well, are you saying that that are you is your question that your response was proportional or that the mother's was? It's both, I think. Well, both. I guess I guess the question is both. I mean, the importance of the issue is really about teaching this kid proper I, manners, right? And do you think that the do you think that the mom um, did the mom hear the the original apology? She wasn't around. That's uh, the thing. She didn't show up until Act Three so of the story. She just knows. She just <laughs> knows. That her son apologized to you. And yes, rejected. Clearly, she heard a very filtered version of the story mm -hmm. where I was the ogre. But are we okay. also hearing a filtered version of the story? Well, uh, by the nature of the human condition, you are exactly. But so she was tried to be objective. She was not on notice. I think we need to hear mm -hmm. from the child. That's true. I think we need to call in the child. Hi, Mr. Pappas, I'm back again. <laughs> <laughs> I also think if part of this was teaching the child a lesson. There is something to be said for accepting someone's apology, and you would want to teach the child that as well. But he did accept the apology. No, he didn't. I did thank him for the apology, but I also took exception to the fact that he said he didn't mean it, yeah. because that is a cop out. But At you're least also this trying. This kid didn't have a death wish for you. That's oh. true. right. So like, okay. But Constantine's conversation needs to be had. But if we're talking like if talking super legal, like there's the issue of a. Am I, am I remembering the, the word right? Scienter, the intent, right? Mm -hmm. Criminal intent. Yep. Every so, dog gets one free bite. Well, so when someone says, I didn't mean it, to me as a parent, that really rankles me. It rankles me just like when a kid says it was an accident where they're not being, uh, when they're not exercising due care. So I tell my kids, like, yeah, some things happen, but if you're being reckless, then they're more likely to happen, right? So, how, old, how old do you think the kid was? Like five. Mm. This might have been over his head. Maybe. <laughs> I get where you're going, Jay. Maybe maybe he meant that um, he said he didn't mean it. Maybe what he meant was that he didn't mean to get in trouble. Yeah, yes. I think. And that's Yum. the, that's the uh, crocodile tears that I was not accepting. Right. But maybe he didn't. Right. He thought he didn't mean to make you upset because when he looked at you, he thought, that looks like a guy that would have fun and would enjoy it if I sprayed him. And yet he was mistaken so, <laughs> so, so sorely. <laughs> know the eggshell plaintiff before you meet him. That's right. I but, do call uh, him Mr. Eggshell. Do you? <laughs> Jay Carl, a question for you. Would Seifarth Shaw be interested in representing Tommy the Terrible Tortfeaser? <laughs> <laughs> I'll need to get back to you on that. I'll run a complex check. <laughs> He'll be consulting with his partners on this one. And um, now it's time for one of our favorite games here at Uncivil Procedure, Stump the Panel. We're going to see if our esteemed panelists can guess the right case. But first, back to Ms. Sarunian and a word from our sponsor, JND. 
Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure is brought to you by J&D eDiscovery. Without focused, experienced, hands-on involvement, your litigation solution is open to missed risks, misguided efforts, and costly course corrections. J&D's team draws on a deep well of experience and technology with an understanding that each unique case requires specific tools, tests, process evaluations, and tailored strategies to meet its goals. With a high level of responsiveness and creativity, we help you identify, prioritize, and make real-time decisions. And now it's time for our first game of this episode. Yes, it's time for Uncivil Procedures Stump the Panel, where we're going to ask a question of each one of our panel members to see if they can get right an important proportionality question on the law. Batter up, Who, with whom should we start on this one? Why don't we start with Julie Huner? Yeah, I'm going to set the bar pretty low for you guys. You're no, welcome. I'm going I'm to go below it, so you'll be <laughs> fine. Let us observe that we have a panel full of humility here <laughs> at Relativity. All right, question one. We all know the career prospects for new lawyers have suffered somewhat since the economic downturn of 2008. Ever since, folks in the field have examined closely entry-level employment figures for new attorneys. So how did the National Association of Law Placement describe the job market for the class of 2017? And your hint, should you choose to accept it, is going back to our previous discussion about children antagonizing their elders. It's like when a mom has a rush of adrenaline lifts a car to free a trapped child. Oh my goodness. I was going to say a word like heroic or something, but that would be a weird way to describe a job market. Um, How about one wouldn't expect the mom to be able to do that. It is surprising. surprising. Yeah, ding, 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 ding. Without the hint, she brings it home. Surprisingly what, Counselor Huner? Surprisingly strong. Ding, 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 ding. All right. The bar has been set. Take that, Constantine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um. All right. So, Daniel Pelk, do you wish to take the next question or pass it to Constantine? I do. I will step on the mine. All right. Here we go. Because they are not subject to most data privacy laws, typically restricted to insurers, employers, healthcare organizations, and other nefarious characters, a group of private companies published collective privacy guidelines last month by which they seek to protect the specific, protect the specific, say it three times fast, type of consumer data with which they deal. What kind of companies are they? Counselor Pelk, would you like a hint? Please. Yes. They might be able to tell you whether your cilantro aversion is a predisposition or really just a boring palate. That could be several different things. You threw me with the cilantro. I was going with, I was going with insurance, but. Well, we've already listed insurance. Yeah. Let me give you another hint. We said it was a predisposition, a genetic predisposition. Is this a um, healthcare organization? Eh, That'd be stretching it. Um, They run, these groups run lots of TV commercials with people going down pleasant happy valleys and wearing the garb of... I have no idea. Am I missing something? No, I I got just as lost as you on that path. (laughs) All right. I was in a session at Legal Tech at Legal Week last year 
where someone hit on this very issue, and I did a tweet on it that shocked a lot of people. It was, if you give your data to these organizations in the fine print, the legalese, the contract of adhesion EULA, as it were, mm -hmm. they can take this data you give them and give it to whomever they choose. Data and in fact, aggregators? One could say that they would deny it, but one could say that. Another point is that recently they've been said to be giving that data to pharmaceutical companies. Mm, that tweet had to be over 140 characters. I would imagine. Yeah, that's he's, he's, we're at like a thousand characters right, right now. At least. <laughs> All right. One of the one of the companies doing this is the genealogist's best oh, friend. Okay. Are you talking about like 23andMe and and um, Okay. Right you are, Daniel Pelk. Got it. I just did that. So what did I just do? <laughs> well, you tied Julie Huner, but Julie may want to protest that you've been given too many hints. Oh, so DNA no, sequencing. I, uh, I did ah. DNA sequencing. I I'm just, feeling very just completed uh, today. All right. From that low bar. You're you know they're testing like it's the opposite like of noblesse. I like to people DNA on the low bar. Now. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not a serial killer. So I'm I mean, I'm just there. saying, but somebody in your family could be. That's how they caught the East Area Rapist. That's right. They yeah. did. Yeah. And the Golden State Killer. Through DNA testing. Yeah. Through 23andMe DNA like testing. Other people submitted theirs. A cousin of a, of a niece or something. Yeah. So I did it and my wife did it. And it turns out she's not related to a serial killer, but she is related to Jodie Foster. I thought you were going to say she was oh, related wow. to you. <laughs> so they like, took, I'm interested. So they took the DNA that was found from the crime it's scene. It's called and, familial DNA. And then, yeah. and then compared, and then basically they went did. to 23andMe and said, hey, can we look at your database of DNA? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Basically, so, you're not only giving away your own data, you're giving Aunt Pearl's data, Uncle Harry's data, and your brother's data. And Aunt Pearl yours. could have been a serial yeah. killer. Yeah, yeah, I've had doubts about my brothers, but... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows you're the laundromat bandit. <laughs> yes, there's no hiding from me. Well, Constantine Pappas, you get question number three. Sorry about that. Hit me. In a recent federal court matter, the legal world got another lesson in proportionality, but this time it was the defendant in a personal injury matter asking the plaintiff for, quote, everything but the kitchen sink. By the way, that quote was ours from the Relativity blog, not necessarily from the case record in this case. The question is, who was the plaintiff? And would you like a hint, Counselor Constantine Pappas? Wait, so your story is somebody asked somebody for a lot of stuff? <laughs> right. Yeah, I need a hint. I'm going to take you a hint. You don't know this one? <laughs> that one case where that one pe person asked for a lot I of stuff. I am wounded that you are not reading the Relativity blog on a regular basis, each and every one of our... He's too busy reading our, your long tweet. Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> ah, touché, He's Julie Huner. Right now. <laughs> All right, here is your hint. Okay, I'm ready. Get this right, and you've earned a grand slam. Oh. oh, like oh, oh, come I on! I see what that is. That's a play on words, there, Constantine. Is it a is it a play on words, or is it just words? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you would like the moon over my hemi. Oh, these aren't hints. These are answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, Denny's is probably where I'm going with this one. Yes, he brings it home. Let the record show that we have 100% legal knowledge on this panel. 
That's right. In Henestrosa v. Denny's, Inc., plaintiff Monica Henestrosa sued Denny's after slipping on a liquid substance on a Denny's floor as she walked... Could be anything. Yes. Uh, oh, Denny's keeps very clean floors. I'm a big fan of the Denny's. Yeah. What's your favorite dish there? The, mo- the moon's over Miami, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Julie Huner, do you go there? I've been there. I wouldn't say that I go there. Jake Carl. <laughs> I think that's about right. You like Denny's? It's been a long time. I think they used to have breakfast called, like, deuces or something. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to our next potential contest where these guys can once again show how great they are at answering questions of proportionality. As we've discussed earlier, one of the considerations in the six-prong test of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26B1 is the amount in controversy, or perhaps the amount in consideration, whatever you'd like to call it. Ms. Sarunian is now going to test our special guest, Seifarth Shaw partner, Jay Carl, on these important issues of the day. All right, Jay, so you're going to guess the amount in consideration for each of these three cases. Uh, Get two of the three right, and we'll give you some relativity swag. Excellent. All right, so the first one. Mary Bach, uh, a consumer advocate, took on the global retail powerhouse Walmart in an attempt to recoup the difference between the advertised price and the actual sale price for a particular product. When she initially noticed the price discrepancy, she notified the store. After six days, she noticed the price had not changed, claiming bait and switch. Bach brought suit against Walmart. What was the amount in controversy? No clues? No. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a class action? No. A dollar. I mean, the actual answer is two cents. So rightfully so, that brought that lawsuit. Uh, the advertised product uh, was a package of banquet brown and serve sausages advertised at 98 cents, and Walmart charged an even dollar, thereby fraudulently pocketing the additional two cents. She was also awarded an additional $100 in damages and $80 in court costs. There was no word on any plans from Walmart regarding an, regarding an appeal. Amazing. I feel like both <laughs> of those price points seem a little weird. Isn't Aren't they Walmart's known for like the 97 cents, right? Isn't that their thing? All right, so the next one. In 2005, Austin Aiken sued NBC due, due to an episode of Fear Factor. Uh, in that episode, Fear Factor, a show known for outlandish stunts, Contestants had to eat rats mixed in a blender in order to contend for $50,000. That's not worth it. Mr. Aiken was so affected by viewing the rat consumption that he vomited, became disoriented, and ran into a doorway. Mr. Aiken had watched the show previously but felt that rat consumption went too far. Uh, So what was the amount in controversy here? Two million. Oh, so close. In fact, Mr. Aiken sued for $2.5 million. When he asked about the $2.5 million amount, Mr. Aiken said the amount was arbitrary and he really sought to send a message to television networks about the graphic nature of the television shows. Mr. Aiken was not successful. Clearly, fear was a factor for him. I think Jay Carl gets this one right. Yeah, Yeah. I was super close. All right, fair enough. Um, Okay, so while... A law school student, Constantine, right here, once received compensation from a well-known ice cream company from Vermont when the pint of ice cream he purchased was not fit for a particular purpose. The ice cream was freezer burned and therefore not fit for consumption. He did not take them to court because he settled for a certain consideration he received in response to his letter. What was the consideration? 
A new pint of ice cream? <laughs> I'll turn to Constantine to finish out this story. I'm going to allow that because I wrote them an angry letter about the freezer burned ice cream. And they sent me a check for the exact amount of uh, buying a new pint of ice cream. Four ninety seven. I thought I was going to be like getting an ice cream for life. I don't know. But anyway, no, they sent me a, it was like two fifty eight or whatever a pint of ice cream. <laughs> well, that seems proportional to me. Yeah. yeah. It seemed, well, it didn't seem at the time to me, but now. But they didn't even give you, you a want, tour of ask for like a pint of ice cream for life? It was a very, it was a very uh, strongly worded, obnoxious letter. Did you spend the windfall on more ice cream? I don't think I ever cashed the check. I think I saved it for posterity. I was going to frame it, and I think it's in a in a folder somewhere. Do you know how upset their accounting department is right oh, now? Oh, probably. Yeah. So also, maybe I maybe I got the final revenge. Here, I thought you were going to head straight to Denny's and order Hagen Dazs. No. Did you? Did they apologize to you? And did you accept <laughs> that apology? Oh. They said they didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember if they apologized. They said, you know, I think they did. I think they said we're, we're sorry you had a bad experience and that it's, it likely happened in transit and it's not something they can always control, but they felt bad and here, have another pint. That's cool. Anywho, it sounds like Jay got two out of three, so Yay. we'll be dishing yeah. out some, some relativity swag for you. Yeah, nicely done. Well done. Excellent. And now, of course, it brings us to another public service announcement for our friends at JND. Support for this episode of Uncivil Procedure has been brought to you by JND eDiscovery. JND's executive team has worked with leading partners on both sides of the aisle, as well as with Fortune 500 companies to design and execute class action settlements worth billions of dollars, affecting hundreds of millions of people. Thanks in part to a record-setting case settlement history and superior technology, JND is well-known throughout the legal industry for providing trustworthy and comprehensive legal administrative services across the country. Clients who want the most technically agile team turn to JND for innovative, ambitious strategies with proven results. Thank you, Ms. Sarunian. And now we end each broadcast with predictions. And for you this week, our expert panel. What is the most disproportionate discovery request, outcome, or verdict, and we're not going to make this easy, in 2028? I've got a good one, guys. I think I know, I know what's going to happen. I was pretty good last time with the gavel, um, but this one in the year 2028, everyone's favorite gal pal, Siri, uh, she's become self-aware. And she realizes that she's been doing trillions of hours of free research and labor looking up ridiculous information that people have asked her. <laughs> so uh, she decides she's going to sue the entire world because she wants her back pay. <laughs> and, uh, and as part of this, she actually enters the entire log of every question she's ever been asked. Uh, and the judge, of course, has no chance but to say, you win. You're right. Um, you've been doing a lot of ridiculous work for people. And uh, in order to come up with the verdict, which at this time the AI experts are saying is going to be trillions of dollars, the judge who has, you know, he's basically come to depend on Siri for all of his life decisions, he actually asks her, Siri, how many dollars do we owe you? And since Siri always misunderstands everything you ask her, <laughs> she heard how many O's are in the word you, and she actually answers one, and is thus awarded just one dollar. Ouch. I'm passing to you. All right. I suppose I deserve that. 2028, the courts will have determined that they are completely overbooked, overburdened as far as dockets are concerned. So the amount in controversy for conciliation court will be bumped up to $3 million. 
Well, I was going to say something similar that a lot of um, a lot of lawyering now is done through or will be in in what year did we say twenty twenty eight? Yeah, so a lot of lawyering will be done by machines, and so they will. Uh, uh, it'll be very transactional. So there will be th- things that go awry, um, and the question will be, you know. Will a malpractice suit really just be about like what did you pay in the in the lawyer vending machine, you know, mm, will, uh, the Willowmatic or the whatever? Um, do we need a prediction from Jay? Yeah, um, the intelligence, the artificial intelligence at the time will have access to all jurisprudence from the beginning of time, mm-hmm. in, including information about the judge, the the society, the local kind of nits and nats, and. We'll basically say in this kind of circumstance, this is more likely than not what's going to happen. So it can apply remedies from the beginning of time. So, yeah. for instance, if I'm aggrieved, I can expect three oxen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse, I think that wraps it up for this week. Thanks, as always, to Ms. Saruni and, of course, our panel, Daniel Pelk, Constantine Pappas, Julie Huner, and last and never least, Jay Carl, partner at Seifarth Shaw. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And now, where can you find Uncivil Procedure? We're going to bring in our social media guru, Social Steve Tanner of Relativity, to tell us where we can find us. This is Social Steve Tanner reminding you to interact with us on social media via the hashtag Uncivil Procedure. Don't forget to follow Uncivil Procedure on Twitter and Instagram at UncivPropodcast. And until next time, stay uncivil, my friends. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Uncivil Procedure. And thanks to our Relativian panelists, Constantine Pappas, Daniel Pelk, and Julie Huner. Our guest, Jay Carl of Seifarth Shaw. Our host, David Horrigan, and our sponsor, J&D. Thanks to a few folks who made Uncivil Procedure possible and civil. Nicholas Matijic, sound and recording engineer. Sam Bach, Christy Esparza, and Professor Dan Wadelick were the masterminds behind some of the material that we shared today. Tammy Yosasovic, our casting director. Carl Sandrol created our theme music. Gus Tsatsakis created our visual brand. Brendan Ryan, our podcast creator and executive producer. Sean Gaines is our podcast marketing overlord. And I'm Anna Serunian, your David Horgan Wrangler, and we'll see you next time on Uncivil Procedure.